Willkommen meine Damen und Herren an den Danger Room, der X-Men Comics Kommentari Podcast. Mein Name ist Adam und ich bin Jeremy. And we're here to discuss X-Men number 99, the June 1976 issue, titled Death Star Rising. Yes, and I would like to thank our first uh, introduction by somebody other than uh, Jeremy and Adam. That submission, of course, was by Google. Thank you, Google, for your patronage and, uh, well, for providing us with that intro. And it just goes welcome. <laughs> it just goes to show that we are multinational. Indeed. It's amazing. Yeah, we are. It's Death Star Rising. And uh, one of the things that I can say is that uh, this is true to what Chris Claremont wanted to do when he originally took on the series. If you read uh, the introduction notes to the uh, Marvel Masterworks Uncanny X-Men Volume 1 or probably somewhere in your omnibus, he talks about some of the various things he wants to do with the story. And one of them is take them into space, which... Space... Which he has clearly done here by by well making the Death Star rise. And, and indeed, clearly he's not afraid to uh, take a little bit of license with uh, some things that maybe George Lucas might have created. Well, this is prior to 1977, so he may have had no idea. You're right. Maybe George Lucas ripped off Chris Claremont. Maybe. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Well. This story, well, I guess we could talk about the cover here real quick. We've got a couple of Sentinels who are blasting some X-Men who are trapped in big magic bubbles. <laughs> and I they, can't, they can't escape out of Cyclops is blasting from the inside of his magic bubble while a Sentinel blasts the outside of his magic bubble and it's not popping. Uh, Colossus says, even if we escape the energy spheres of the Sentinels, how can we survive the vacuum of space? That's a terrible Russian accent. I don't even. <laughs> that was more of a German accent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just it takes a while for me to get the feel of uh, of Colossus. I don't know what I need to do to make it happen, but it it didn't happen there. You see that piece of metal over there? I see. Uh, what piece of metal? Oh, well, find a piece of metal. Okay. And then hold it with both hands. Okay. And then then you've got a feel for Colossus. <laughs> well, I I got to be honest. I don't. Maybe I didn't read this issue very well, but I don't recall them ever being trapped in space bubbles. Space bubbles do make an appearance, but no, no, nobody gets trapped in them. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, maybe maybe uh, Cockrum and Claremont weren't necessarily on the same page when they developed this cover. This is another one of these standard Cockrum covers that is just, it feels like every cover he does is a little too much going on. Yeah, it is kind of messy. There's a, yeah, it's like a kid with uh, too many uh, paint colors. Uh, he, he ended up, instead of doing a nice painting, it's uh, there's a lot of brown. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, not to rip on Cockrum. I mean, this it's a, it's a decent, uh, it's a decent cover, but. Uh, well, he draws way better than I do. I'll, I'll give him that. Absolutely. Same here. Well, 
let's talk about uh, our creative. Before, b- before we jump into the issue, I want to, uh, a couple of notes about the previous issue that we did. Okay. Merry Christmas X-Men, you may recall. Um, a couple of things that I discovered after the podcast um, is that a couple of cool people were in the crowd. We we saw the obvious cameos from Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, but apparently uh, in the crowd in New York City was also Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum, Julia Schwartz, Bonnie Wilford, and um, those are all those are all uh, uh, employees at Marvel. And then Matt Murdock was in there. Clark Kent and Lois Lane were in there. Wait a second. Um, is this is the first splash page, right? I don't know if I, I think they're spread throughout the issue. Okay. I think at the first splash page, no, all these people are not there. Well, I think Matt Murdock is right there. Oh yeah, definitely, I agree. He is definitely on the first page, as is Nick Fury, as we pointed out, and I think that's Chris Claremont on the first page. But actually, somebody's referred to in a crowd in a later page as Chris, so that might be him. What, what? Um, also. The person that we saw ice skating with the cape that I that we both thought was Magneto yeah. is actually Doctor Doom. <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> Another uh, stupid note is that Peter Corbo's boat is named the Deja Thoris. What is that a reference to? Yeah, me. Oh, okay. But maybe one of our listeners know. I would imagine so. All right, then. Uh, I guess I would have never picked up on those. And that's that's why we have you, Adam, to do our research for me. Also, somebody named Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. I don't know who that is or if that's a Marvel. I don't know. Who is that? I skipped over that one because I didn't know who it was. <laughs> I thought I'd mention it. Oh, okay. I'd be curious where uh, Lois and Clark actually are. I would have to imagine that they're one of those skating people. But, I don't know. Hmm. Well, maybe uh, it's our it's the Where's Waldo for this week, everybody. Write in and let us know where uh, Lois and Clark are in issue uh, number ninety-eight. Actually, I bet you by the time this issue or this episode gets released, Arthur Painter would already have told us all of this stuff. Yeah, Arthur, and if you haven't told us already, shame. <laughs> You're slacking. <laughs> okay, well, the creative team on this book, of course, is Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Frank Chiera is our inker, Irving W. is at the letterer, and Michelle W. is the colorist, and Marv Wolfman is the editor. Do you think the W's in all those names are just Marv's uh, family, a, a whole bunch of Wolfmans? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Irving Wolfman, Michelle Wolfman. Marv Wolfman. He's the uh, Marv is short for Marvin. Marvin Wolfman, sure. Or is it Marvel? Oh. Marvel Comics Wolfman. Hmm, interesting. Perhaps he's the Marvel Comics Wolfman. Uh, well, not to be undone, the Wolverine, the Banshee, and the Jean Grey are floating around in space. Dead. The, the Marvel Girl. The Marvel Girl. As you'll recall from last issue, they had busted free from a corridor as they were trying to make their escape from the Sentinels, only to be surprised. Did we actually learn that they were in the middle of space last? Oh, yes, we did. Yeah, we did. And uh, so this just continues right where we left off. In the vacuum, icy coldness of space. I feel like Jean Grey's skirt is a little shorter in this issue than it was last issue. <laughs> yeah, Dave Cockrum's like, why don't we just cinch that up a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're outside, uh, and they're not really moving around too much. Um, I got to be honest, it's a good uh, facial representation of uh, Banshee, a good face picture of Banshee. Yeah. No. Wolverine like and a real dude. Wolverine and Jean, 
kind of kind of generic comic book fair, but but Banshee, a lot of, a lot of good detail was put into him. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, Sentinels are deployed, and uh, what we get is a little bit of a, I guess, kind of a call and response uh, series of what ten panels here on one page between what's happening up in space and what Cyclops and Peter Corbo are discovering back on Earth. Which, uh, we, I guess we could do it one by one. Uh, the Sentinels use their magic space bubbles, or Atmos spheres, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> to uh, recapture the X-Men who have somehow survived. <laughs> right. So they've uh, solidified their survival by encasing them in bubbles. It is imperative that rescue be effected before mutant life functions terminate. Uh, Dr. Peter Corbo somehow hooked Cerebro into NORAD's Valhalla Mountain main data bank one. He never dreamed that Xavier had that kind of clearance, whatever that means. Uh, but apparently Valhalla is uh, what would we would call today a mainframe computer. Not necessarily mm. a main data bank, but it's where all of the information is, and that's why they got to ask it the right question. And uh, the the panel after the bubbles with Cyclops interfacing with like the circuit boards mm-hmm. is more confusing than anything else. <laughs> why is that? I don't know. It, it's like, uh, do you remember in the Transformers there was that that girl uh, Cyber or what the heck was her name? She was Circuit Girl or something like Circuit Breaker. That was her name. Oh, in the comic book. In the comic in the books, yeah. And she was would... in the show. I was thinking RC. No, I just saw a T-shirt today where uh, Optimus Prime is kneeling before RC, and he says, "But baby, I can change." <laughs> Who? Oh, RC was the pink car, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I thought that was pretty funny. That is a pretty funny shirt. But uh, I don't know. It's like his power is to like mutantly interface with the circuit board because his head's a circuit board and he's the backdrop's a circuit board. Uh, I don't know. I guess what they're trying to do is like talk about how Cyclops is so tapped into the inner workings of the Valhalla main data bank. It's like he's one with them as he tries to narrow in on the data. It's like he's in the Matrix before the <laughs> Matrix was made up of zeros and ones. It was made out of, like, capacitors and stuff. <laughs> well, the, the Sentinels bring the um, mutants back into the space station, and Valhalla main data bank returns a negative search. i got to be honest, I don't really know what they're looking for. Is that, like, or, or is that just a microchip that is labeled search negative? <laughs> yeah, it's like... All roads lead to this. Like, if search equal negative, then go to this chip. <laughs> and then the chip does something, like makes a siren go off. Ultimately, what they discover is they have records of what the, the special material the Sentinels are made of, and they figure out that it is, it is in fact, uh, at an orbital space station outside of Earth. S.H.I.E.L.D.'s orbital platform. Right. So, I don't know Repurposed that... by... Project Armageddon. Right. Do we know that? Well. We find that out. I mean, that's where they are. Yeah. So the next panel is a series of the X-Men getting ready to launch into space, which is very confusing because the very first panel starts off with the news. And some newscaster who's talking about... uh, 
The midnight launch is imminent and is on schedule. Dr. Peter Corbo and his crew will take off. And then they transfer over to Geraldo, which I don't know. Is that the Geraldo? Like Geraldo Rivera? I think Rivera. it is Geraldo Rivera. It's it, a young Geraldo Rivera. It could be because the Marvel Universe has been known to use real life uh, um, news personnel, personalities. So it very well could be a young Geraldo Rivera. Rivera. It's interesting they're ramping up the mutant hysteria in this issue quite a bit. So the, there's a mob on the TV screen after the whole uh, um, spaceship, uh, the space shuttle launch uh, is uh, being reported as going off as scheduled. There's a couple of people that this mob is attacking, and it looks like Namor and maybe... It's weird. It's like Namor meets Spock. Is that... He's got pointy ears that... I don't think Namor's ears are that pointy. He's got pointy ears, but yeah, these are these are very pointy ears. And then there's a girl with him that has like a massive widow peak that could maybe be what I don't know the female namer. I don't know what her name is. But they, I don't, I don't think this is Namor. But so this is just a couple of uh, mutants that we don't know who it is. And in the backdrop, there's a a guy with beast hair. It's a silhouette and some yellow eyes. I don't know if that actually is beast or or what, but. I was thinking it was like Quicksilver hair for some reason. Well, I guess Quicksilver did kind of have that hair. We don't. It's a very confusing panel because we don't know who the mob's attacking and we don't know who the shadowy figure is in the background. And really, the story's not about any of them. But still, well, you know, the the shadowy figure in the background is part of the giant sign that says mutants. It's just representing the the news item. Mm. The the I'm assuming the that is an actual scene of mutant hysteria where somebody's some mob is just attacking some random dude for having pointy ears and for some reason the epidemic of anti-mutant hysteria swept the country following the christmas eve reappearance of the notorious mutant hunting sentinels so what kind of doesn't make any sense because like wouldn't people be mad about the sentinels yeah be like you know those mutants were just having a good old time hanging out by the tree just like the rest of us normies and then the sentinels came up and stirred up trouble yeah i agree but some pretty serious uh, and actual kind of uh, realistic ramifications of this mutant hatred is that Judge Chalmers' house was firebombed. Mm-hmm. By some, what well, says, uh, Judge Robert Chalmers, noted jurist and outspoken foe of the anti-mutant movement. Oh, I see. So he was firebombed by people who thought he was like a mutant sympathizer. Right. Okay. But his he was not there, so he was unharmed, everybody. Judge Chalmers may make a return. Uh, but then we kind of switch back to the um, shuttle crew and we find out that in the same uh, newscast that this mission was hastily put together uh, with unusual speed by Starcor, presumably to beat out the increasingly deadly solar radiation storm. So while the opening segment of the news was like, well, the shuttle launch is on schedule, the very bottom is like, yep, it was put together really quickly. <laughs> like, which is it? And how fast was this put together? I mean, let's think about this, right? Let's say it's Monday, and they discover that they're on shield orbital platform, the, the X-Men do. How mm-hmm. long and how much pull does Peter Corbo have to pull together a rocket launching into space? I don't know. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They kind of imply later that the the the, the, the shuttle launch was a couple like decided it was going to happen a couple of days ago. I think somebody says it's going to happen on Christmas, 
but apparently it got moved back or something. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm so confused because, like, this is a very expensive space mission. And uh, we learn later, of course, that uh, I think we learned that Corbo replaced his uh, uh, original crew with these X-Men or, or something. Well, how did these X-Men get clearance to get on the shuttle in the first place? Yeah, well, he says he didn't replace them. He set them. He set up the mission with them as the crew, but that still doesn't make any sense. So really, I'm Dr. Peter Corbo, and I'm just like, hey, NASA, I'm going to come down with some people that you don't know that have zero space training, and we want to take a rocket up to my star core. Can you make that happen? And they're like, sure. Presumably they all have false IDs or something, and nobody gets a good look at them. So maybe <laughs> maybe Peter Corbo just stole a bunch of people's licenses, <laughs> licensed to space. L- licensed to Okay, well... So I have, I mean, uh, I guess this is the first time that the X-Men are going into space, but they pick like the most implausible way to get into space. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I would have been, I mean, the the Fantastic Four have been in space, the Avengers have been in space, and they usually find spacecrafts or spaceships, but they choose like the most implausible, realistic way to get into space, and it makes no <laughs> sense. Anyway, I'm sorry. It really bothers me. But anyways, we get into... On a side note, the wing of the spaceship is labeled Star Corps. Yeah. Well, they also say in the newscast that it's a, uh, it's a Star Corps mission. Mm, yes. So, so it's all connecting back to some of the earlier uh, non-X-Men issues we read. And, yeah, Peter Corbo. Yep. And isn't he like the head of Star Corps or something like that? Yeah, he's like the designer or, or something. The space project station. director, it says yeah. here. So anyhow, I guess he's also an astronaut and a space shuttle pilot. So dude's got talent. Yeah. <laughs> Storm has a little fit because uh, she's feeling a little claustrophobic in her helmet. Do we know she's claustrophobic yet or, or did we figure that out from the whole, uh, the when she was surrounded by demons? Is that her, her first claustrophobia? Yeah, I'm just leaping to conclusions, but she's had three instances. She's had when she was surrounded by demons, uh... Uh, there was something else about her being, well, there was like the couple of flashbacks we had. And then the dialogue here is like, by God, it feels good to get this monstrous th- or this marvelous to get this helmet off. Another second trapped inside this cursed suit. And I'd have started screaming. So we know she doesn't like small spaces. Right. Yeah. She doesn't like to feel encased. Um, And apparently neither does Peter who is uh, having a huge like amount of sweat dripping down his face. Nightcrawler notices, and then he suddenly s- steals up and bursts out of his astronaut uniform, shouting, Mikhail! Mikhail. That works for me, too. <laughs> uh, and when he first said that, I was like, why is he talking about Gorbachev? Is he president in 1975? <laughs> Uh, but two things. Uh, well, he's not talking about uh, the former president uh, of of, uh, the, of the of Russia. He's talking about his brother, who apparently was also involved in the Russian cosmonaut program and died in some of the uh, failed launches. I'm going to have to say that in the 70s, Stalin was in charge of Russia. So that's his brother who died in the launch pad. Uh, and then uh, Peter Corbo is like, yep, I remember Apollo 1. We a lot of, I lost a lot of friends. So they're definitely talking about what was happening on or happening during the time. But the question I have here is, uh, does Colossus's weight change as he turns into steel? Yeah, I don't know. Um, that's a good question that will 
will present itself later as well. So what I don't understand is how come his costume bursts open? Does he does he change in size? Unstable molecules. But his his astronaut costume. Oh, like he bursts out kind of like the Hulk bursts out of his clothes. Right. Uh I would yeah, he he must, right? So, yeah, I guess I guess he has to. So, I mean, the the question I have here is uh do you think NASA budgeted enough fuel for Colossus's metal form? <laughs> I mean, they run those things pretty tight, right? I mean, you basically have enough fuel to get up and get down based on the exact weight that you have. Hmm. So if you were to add like 100, 200 pounds of uh, organic steel, it might, might cause a problem, don't you think? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, we move on to the final countdown. It's the final countdown. And uh, during this final countdown, <laughs> uh, each, each, well, Peter Corbo leads it off, but each of the X-Men think a little bit about what's going to happen in that great black yonder that is space. Peter Corbo feels like he's going home. Scott worries about Jean. Storm calms herself. Colossus self-doubts, I suppose, and... Nightcrawler worries about Colossus and thinks about his buddies in Dejar Marked. I think uh, Nightcrawler is just very excited. He's like, this is, this is awesome. Yeah, that's not very good either. <laughs> <laughs> well, off they go. They take off without incident. And uh, they have a, there's a little bit of back and forth between the control, uh, the mission control. And think about this. You have a whole mission control for this mission. There's, hundred, yeah. there's hundreds of people that are in... Uh, uh, wherever they are, Florida or Dallas or or wherever, and and they're talking back and forth and making sure that everything's normal and and that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, and remember they're monitoring this flight. Yeah. Keep that in mind. They are monitoring this flight. Okay, that's a good point. Um, well, we do find out that uh, the shield, the orb, shield orbital station is formally Starcore One. Um, apparently, I don't know. There's a bunch of people in blue uniforms. No, I think this is a different ship. This is Starcore One is not the shield it's ship. It's not? Oh, I think you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. You're right. So this is Starcore One. Uh, and there's some people in blue uniforms who are monitoring the sun flares. And that's about it. I don't know. And the sun flares are acting up. Do they know that uh, Peter Corbo and the X-Men are coming? I'm not entirely sure the purpose of these three panels. I think maybe just to say that the radiation is coming. Let's see. That's why I assumed it was uh, where Stephen Lang was, because it's like, why else would we have StarCore 1? Huh. Well, cause I think because StarCore 1 is like a Marvel staple. Like somebody reading the X-Men who reads the Avengers or some other comic of like, ah, look, dude, it's Starcore 1. This is totally in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're right. So as they're flying on, uh, uh, Colossus appears to be getting a little bit uh, space sick. You know, they say sometimes people go crazy on these long trips. They get the space madness. <laughs> space madness. What I wondered is, does Colossus puke metal? <laughs> Liquid metal. <laughs> Liquid metal. I guess it I'd freezes. <laughs> I'd rather have that than the alternative. But 
He is getting very sick, he says. I feel strange. Almost mm-hmm. as if I was dead, or I wish I was dead. But Peter Corbo just says, don't worry, it's a little bit of space sickness. Uh, your no training wouldn't have prepared you for any of this. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, shut up, I got a message from StarCore. We cut to a scene entirely far, far away in um, the village of Delrune in, what is this, Scotland or Ireland? I don't know. It's near Dublin, so it's got to be Ireland. So what happens in the scene is a Mr. Flaherty, who is a lawyer, is trying to deliver a letter to a Mr. Sean Cassidy, care of Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, and he manages to do so uh, to the irritable... Uh, post office man, yeah, and and then he uh, he he's attacked by a mystery cousin. You're too late. Your cousin's been warned. He'll stop your mad plans. Hi, Tai, poor foolish lawyer Flatterty. <laughs> My cousin couldn't have stopped this morning sun from rising. What? He could sooner stop the morning sun. Whatever. So Sean Cassidy has an evil cousin, it seems. And his name is Black Tom. His name is Black Tom. And apparently all he needs to do is prevent this letter from being delivered to uh, Gray Malkin Street. But I'm going to guess he doesn't. I'm going to guess he doesn't either, which is like, uh, why did he decide to, uh, did he kill this guy or what? Yeah, he he kills him, but he um I don't know, he he must be far enough away from the post office that Black Tom didn't realize he came out of a post office. Hmm. Okay. Well, anyways, that's, that's my guess cuz otherwise why wouldn't he just go into the post office and be like, "Hey, a guy deliver a letter?" and then kill the guy and find the letter and burn down the post office. So, while I feel like this is definitely opening up a new storyline, which is nice and fun, uh, I also feel like it's just kind of like burning pages. Like Claremont's kind of like, uh, this is the middle of a three-part issue and I'm out of pages. How am I going to add something to make this 19 or 20 pages or whatever it's supposed to be? Nah, I disagree. Really? I think this is a typical, I'm going to add a new story element to this right in the middle of the story. Okay. Perhaps the pacing isn't very good, which it just kind of interrupts, which is maybe what you're detecting, but. I, I don't think it's uh I don't think it was like a lack of pages or anything like that personally. Okay. All right. You could be right. Anyhow, uh we get uh we're we're back in space and this is where I got confused because uh there's a boxy spaceship and it says 1300 miles above our tussled heads it circles the earth whatever it is. And to it have come dictators and dignitaries, physicists and fools, and once upon a time, Avengers. So I thought this is, I mean, didn't the Avengers go to Starcore 1? No, they never did. Not in the issues that we read anyway. Um, they they may have at some point. Okay. And then I was like, how did they get dignitaries up into this thing? Like, really, do we really <laughs> have that much money to send foreign dignitaries up to our space stations? And be like, check this out. <laughs> It was a very wealthy time in the Marvel Universe. I guess so. Um, okay, so this is what I got confused as being the repurposed StarCore 1. But apparently, uh, while this was government-funded at one point, it was um, cut from the budget and uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. abandoned its space platform before Project Armageddon. So I guess Project Armageddon repurposed it. Yeah. Which is a government program. 
Yikes. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I suppose government. Well, we have this like ship hanging out up there. I guess you can have that. <laughs> so the uh, uh, Peter Corbo is asking for permission to dock, I guess, uh, because they're entering into a dangerous solar zone or something. Yeah, the radiation levels are moving into the danger zone. <laughs> and uh, Stephen Lang, he's all like, nope, you've got foreign personnel aboard. Sanctuary is denied. Plus, they're a top-secret U.S. government installation, so no can do. And then the uh, worker sitting at the console says, Dr. Lang, the mutant detector, it's going crazy. That ship out there must be crammed with muties. Must be. And indeed it is. So they send out some sentinels. They deploy... Now, remember, NASA's watching all this. <laughs> well, it's not like they have TV cameras up there, but, yeah, they're probably monitoring communications and such. Yeah. But uh, the, here comes three Sentinels. They come out of the uh, repurposed S.H.I.E.L.D. space station, and uh, they, they come attacking the Star Corps 1. Most everybody except for Colossus gets their helmets on, and that's when the Sentinels shoot the outer hull of the space shuttle. Causing everybody to float out into space. Uh, it sucks Storm right out into space. Um, somebody's very upset about that. I can't tell who. So, oh, I guess it must be Nightcrawler because he's got three-fingered gloves. Now, think about that for just a second. <laughs> they had to come up with this space mission, and then they had to say, oh, and before we go, we need some custom-tailored three-fingered gloves, to which NASA was like, what? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, he's a, he's a he's an amputee scientist. Really smart, but three fingers. Oh, and two toes. <laughs> that, is, that's, that is pretty awful. All right. So anyways, uh, well, yeah, uh, Colossus does not have a helmet on, nor does he have a spacesuit, and apparently he cannot breathe. He is suffocating. So Cyclops says, Colossus is going to die, so get us into that sh that space station now, Dr. Corbo. And so Dr. Corbo crashes the space shuttle into the space station, at which point... We cut to a scene of NASA flipping out. They're like, oh, my God, the space shuttle smashed into the space station. What are we going to do? And then uh, one of the guys comes out and says, this is no longer a mission. It's a rescue mission. And that man's name is Ed Harris. And none of that happens because I guess NASA, NASA went home early. <laughs> uh, they're, they, they went around the sun, so there's sunspots and the, the solar flares and communication blackout and stuff that's what probably happened <laughs> oh yeah radiation blackout that's yeah, what yeah, it yeah. is uh, uh dr peter corbo does say that if they smash this baby up uh they're not gonna go home well but they have no choice mm -hmm. so geronimo and spickadam spickadam Yep. They crash into the side of the space station, which I can only assume instantly seals up the wound of the spaceship so that nobody dies or loses oxygen. Right, of course. And <laughs> also, like, four uh, Project Armageddon guys and a Sentinel just happen to be standing around where the spaceship crashes into, and they go flying! <laughs> yeah. Do you think they were, like, talking to the Sentinel, making fun of it or something? Hey, Sentinel! Hey, Sentinel! What do you think about human life? Yuck, yuck, yuck. Catch any muties lately? <laughs> Sentinel A1 is not programmed for this. Spick damn! 
<laughs> well, meanwhile, outside, um, Storm is left alone to face, it looks like, one sentinel. And she's doing a lot of thinking to herself, and she's wondering if she can command a cosmic storm. Which, as it turns out, not only can she do that, but she can also fly on the solar winds. Wow. That's helpful. And uh, so she she blasts him with some cosmic storm or something like that. A force 12 gale in deepest space, a gale backed by the full power of the raging sun itself. And the sentinel goes, Ay! <laughs> And she notes that the scream sounded almost human, and she, she remembers her parents' death and, and thinking about how she swore an oath to never take another's life. And perhaps being an X-Men will require her to break that oath, and maybe she shouldn't be an X-Men after all. It's a, but then again, she better go help her friends. It's a mutant hunting robot. <laughs> so somebody programmed it to have like an AE sound when it gets blasted in deep space. It's just got her thinking, you know. All right. I might have this, been... this was a setup to get some more past of, of Storm's life. Okay. Well, we, uh, we uh, cut back inside the space station and uh, we're mid-battle. There's humans that are being hit by X-Men and Sentinels being hit by X-Men and Sentinels holding X-Men. And it's just, it's a madhouse in here. Cyclops, Colossus throws something into the middle of a Sentinel's chest, which bursts through with a mighty bedow. You got some, uh, you got a Sentinel who's gassing Cyclops, but uh, Nightcrawler's not going to have any of it. So he grabs a piece of metal that he finds and bashes the Sentinel across the head. That's using his power. Kadam. <laughs> and uh, Cyclops is all like, well, thank you for that, but you're not in the circus anymore, mister. And that kind of flamboyance can cost us if you're not careful. I have been a showman all my life, Cyclops. I don't know where that accent's <laughs> wow. coming from, but well, watch out. This For this other Titan Frankenstein, my friend, it is in my blood. And I'm not about to change for you or anyone. I can't do it, German. <laughs> Save my life. And then he turns Mexican and says, hola. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. But, uh, yeah, so Cyclops is just... So Cyclops is all business, and he's kind of like, stop screwing around and let's be a team. Let's just remember that for a moment. And Nightcrawler is like, no. <laughs> yeah, which is fine. I, I get it. Uh, but then Colossus, I mean, he says, uh, Nightcrawler, quickly, that move we worked out in the danger room. So now these two are like, screw you, Cyclops. We've developed a move, and we're going to use it against this Sentinel. And this move, well, this makes me question your earlier question. Does Colossus weigh more when he's steeled up? Yep. Because presumably he weighs a lot more than Nightcrawler. Somehow... Nightcrawler is able to like see using like a seesaw platform, which Colossus has conveniently set up. Like he's had, he's like, if I could just set this up here and wait until the Sentinel comes over here, we should be able to do this. <laughs> yep. Well, so according to the uh, official guide, not to the official guide of Marvel Universe, the Marvel Superheroes board or uh, RPG, Colossus weighed I think like five hundred and fifty pounds in his armored up form. Hmm. But yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. With enough momentum, Nightcrawler could certainly launch that into a Sentinel. Well, Adam, they are using a lever fulcrum situation here. And if 
there was enough space between the fulcrum and where Nightcrawler's landing, he probably could elevate Colossus into the air. With enough force that the Colossus would bounce off of the, the, the Sentinel, causing his head to fall off. And would that, in fact, make the noise Rakam? I don't think it would make the noise Rakam. And I think Nightcrawler's side of the seesaw would have to be eight times as long as Colossus's for it to have any effect. So <laughs> basically, the perspective here makes this all wrong. But the general idea is that Nightcrawler jumps onto a seesaw and launches Colossus into the Sentinel, which works. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> eat your heart out, Olga Korbut who apparently I looked up is a Soviet born gymnast who won four medals and two, two, four gold medals and two silver medals at the summer Olympic games in both 1972 and 1976 for USSR. Wow. It's timely and everything. Yeah. Colossus is all like comrade Korbut is a dedicated and conscientious artist of the Soviet people. You should not make fun of her. So, Rakam. <laughs> Rakam. And Colo- or, I mean, Cyclops, not to be undone, he shoots the, the sentinel in the chest with a fazam noise. Zit. <laughs> no more zits anymore. Uh, and then Cyclops notes that this is insane. Dan- the danger room gives us more trouble than these steel dummies have. It's all been a bit too easy. Oh, we should note that in an earlier panel... Uh... Nightcrawler saw Colossus going a little berserk, and he he uh, he he commented that he's like a man fighting for the woman he loves. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. is they're they're kind of which they get more into this later. Well, in this page, as a matter of fact. Yeah, as as Cyclops is worried about Jean, and suddenly Colossus is worried about Storm. Um, Jean Grey and the others. What about Storm? She is adrift out there. She could be hurt. Back off, Colossus. I know how you feel. You know nothing. She is our friend, our comrade in battle. She could be dead. And you act as if you do not even care. Well, Colossus cares. I lost the accent somewhere in there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he's he's caring about Storm a little bit more so than a buddy cares about another buddy. But And not only that, but then she shows up and she's like, I'm grateful for that, dude. And, and he grabs her and picks her up and says, I can't believe it. This is too wonderful to be true. When I saw you blown out of the spaceship, I thought you were truly doomed. And then they go in for a kiss. Well, that panel is like kind of awkward because it's the two of them. Well, I mean, Klaus is basically embracing um, Storm. Everybody else is out of the panel. So like the closeness is just them. So you know that the only thing in Colossus's mind right now is Storm. But to make things even worse, you go to the very next panel. It's a close-up of both of their faces, like just about to go in for a kiss. And you as the reader are looking at this like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) <laughs> are they establishing a love thing here? Because this is weird. I feel like they are establishing a love thing here, which I, I'm curious to see how this plays out and eventually disappears. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it'll be dropped immediately. Uh, but uh, Storm's kind of like, um, please stop hugging me. <laughs> yeah. You're hurting me. Yeah. Oh, I am sorry. It's just that I am so glad to see you. We all are. Eh, Cyclops? Cyclops? 
and the Cyclops to make matters even more confusing is now no, no longer standing in front of a background, but his background is now Jean Grey's face. It's some sort of telepathic projection or something. She is contacting him telepathically, sending a message, letting him know where Wolverine and Banshee are and where she and the professor are. B-deck and main mission, respectively. What's main mission? I don't know. <laughs> it's like That's the n- where Professor X and Jean Grey are. It's like the name of a floor or something, but I've never heard anything called that. Other than like, hurry, you've got to get us. We are the main mission. <laughs> but anyhow. Uh, but hurry, Scott, hurry. Stephen Lang is coming. He means to murder us. And this is when Cyclob loses all judgment and starts doing things stupidly. Colossus, Storm, Nightcrawler, follow the root signs down to B-deck. You'll find Wolverine and Banshee there. Okay, now there's four of them. <laughs> Why don't you split them up two and two? Nah, you three go over there. I'm going to come over here. Oh, the weakest human, you come with me. Right. <laughs> and, uh, well, Storm's kind of like, but Cyclops, that will leave you on your own. Suppose them are Sentinels. Cyclops. And I'll handle them, Storm. Right now, I've given you an order. Obey it! As for you, Stephen Lang, so-called hagged honcho of this ball of wax, he's mine, X-Men. Mine alone. He's gritting his teeth. He's got like. Why is he so angry? This just seems forced. He's got a lot of gums going on here in this picture. <laughs> he's got gums that are like the length of his teeth. Wow, he does. <laughs> it's gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, it's kind of a role change here for him to be all berserk like that. But he grabs a uh, he grabs Corbo and they head off to main mission. Uh, where they they quickly discover uh, Mr. Mr. Stephen Lang himself with a some sort of blaster rifle, and he's about to shoot the professor or Jean Grey or both of them. Well, and he also and, uh, comments to himself that the Trask notes he used to reconstruct the Sentinels must have been incomplete because these Sentinels are no good. So back to what we were talking about, like, are all of the Sentinels found as Sentinels? It looks like no. He actually did construct these Sentinels with bad plans. But, well, he says reconstruct, though, so that kind of... Oh, so could... maybe possibly imply that he used the same parts so maybe he found like a warehouse of trask parts and he's like well let's just put these together yeah and he forgot a couple of circuits or something yeah maybe maybe i don't know sure i'll go with that it's good enough for me well uh cyclops blows down the hatch door and then he shoots lang then he punches lang then he punches him again and again and again and again and again how does it feel, you animal, facing someone one-on-one? Someone who can fight back? Um, Answer me, Lang! Answer me! Cyclops, for <laughs> pity's sake, stop! You're killing him! Answer! <laughs> Scott, behind you, there's someone in the next room. What is it, Gene? Another sentinel? And then? And then we really should get a zit here, but no, it's a Zack! Somebody zacks him in the back, and he's he's down for the count, and we get the silhouette of a man who's got, like, bulbous ears and a round head. Kind of looks familiar, but I can't place him. He looks very familiar, like, like almost like someone in this room. Yeah. No. But, but from yesteryear. Oh, no. It can't be you. Please, don't let it be you. That, that dialogue makes no sense once you figure out who it is. <laughs> and then Lang is like, but it is Miss Gray. 
the ultimate irony, the ultimate undefeatable enemy. And then we get this great panel of Stephen Lang with like a busted up lip and a busted up eye and his cheeks are all busted up. And man, Cyclops did a number on him. He is messed up. Kind of cool. Uh, the heart, uh, this is the heart of Project Armageddon, not those rather pathetic Sentinels, though he would have hoped that they would have done better, but this, uh, and Resistance is futile because the mental powers are being neutralized by a mind not unlike your own, whatever that means. Which, of course, means you won't be able to warn your fellow X-Men, and we get a panel of the fellow X-Men running into the room. Up, oh, we should note that they've rescued, uh, Banshee and Wolverine. It's true. Just like they, among them. Just like they said they would, but um, I have a feeling that sometime in the future somebody's going to feel the need to show how that actually happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, they are there, uh, and they run into the room, um, and they're unable to believe what they see. Ach, this is a joke, is it not? It must be a joke or a nightmare. And we turn the page... And the professor's wearing a nice purple and pink ensemble. Is he? Yeah, well, in the omnibus he is. Oh, in mine he's wearing a a green jacket with kind of a yellowish shirt. Hmm, That would make more sense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, young Cyclops is uh, also near young Marvel Girl, Angel, Beast, Non-Furry, and Iceman, along with the professor. And and they are now facing its its new old X-Men versus new X-Men. And they share some words. Oh, you guys are imposters. And then Storm says, we're not the imposters. We are the X-Men. And Iceman says, like heck you are, lady. Whatever these guys are, they got Iceman down pat. Yes, they do. Uh, Agreed, Iceman. These imposters are the deadliest foes you have ever fought. Well, they've got uh, Professor X's dialogue down as well. (laughs) So attack, my X-Men. Show them the same mercy they would show you. Well, that's kind of off. Uh, attack these imposters and kill them all. That's, That's also bleeding off. into Magneto a little. <laughs> yes, so it's kind of a uh, a hybrid of Magneto and Professor X. These are clearly not the original X Men. We know this because Cyclops and Marvel Girl are amongst them. But and may- Professor X. But maybe somehow and Beast is not blue. Be- between the moment that they were captured and. Um, Even Angel. Is Angel wearing the right costume? Well, maybe he is. Who knows? Who knows? He had too many costume changes. There you go. Uh, Arcataclysmic 100th issue. A tale of triumph and tragedy. X-Men versus X-Men to the death. Somebody's somebody's going to die. I'm going to go on on a limb and say it's going to be these old X-Men. No way. Wolverine. (laughs) The Wolverine is the first to die. Thunderbird returns for a panel. Hey guys, it turns out I didn't. And then he gets crushed. <laughs> he gets killed again. And a whole bunch of letters ensue. Is like, why do you hate Native Americans? <laughs> uh, I have to comment here that the Wolverine got no words whatsoever in this issue. Oh yeah, <laughs> his claws in this last panel are crazy looking, though. They're crazy big. Um, so yeah, that brings us to the end of the issue number ninety nine. There was like letter, a couple letters here. I wanted to just call out real quick. Was one of them, Chris, your writing stinks almost as bad as Cockrum's art. That's the second one I was going to look at. (laughs) But the first one is blah, 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 far freaking out. And then the next one is, Chris, 
your writing stinks as bad as Crockram's art. Uh, I thought this was an interesting letter by Daniel Ruscio talking about how uh, Chris really did a job on Lorna Dane. Hasn't he heard of the women's movement? Referring to uh, Lorna being complete and fulfilled by her relationship with Havoc. Yeah. And then he, she, he, uh, Daniel also goes on to talk about Nightcrawler's sexist, magnificent legs uh, comment, which he, he makes an interesting point. After all, he isn't exactly human, is he? Isn't he more like a creature who has a tail, two-toed feet, and a demonic countenance would have a different sense of beauty than ordinary earthlings? And they don't, they don't bother answering that. But they do say, you know, ah, women are allowed to love men and, and men love uh, men, women too. And did you notice that they were both doctoral candidates? Mm-hmm. You jerk. I liked how they answered this one because they're like, hold your horses a minute there, Dan. Cheerful Chris Claremont has indeed heard of the women's movement and he believes in many of their goals. Not all of them. <laughs> many <laughs> i don't know what all their goals are but it's kind of a funny statement to be like yeah you still there's still a little wiggle room for like ooh, I, voting no that's you can't let women vote that's crazy uh that's it though um back to facebook we put the call out to you and now we can't stop the momentum so continue spreading the word as you can uh, looks like michael bailey is doing his best to spread the word he recently found us. He is on an X-Men kick, or an X-Men kick, and he wanted to see what was out there in terms of X-Men podcasts. And, well, he must have typed in something. Uh, hopefully he just typed in X-Men podcasts, because I think that's where we come up the best. And uh, he found our show, and he has begun listening uh, as our giant-sized X-Men number one. And uh, he said that uh, we, uh, so we, are, we are a lot of fun. We have a good rapport, and the sound quality is great. I'm glad that that was the ending thing, because sometimes in podcasts, they're like, well, it sounded good, but they never actually talk about like how good the content was. I'm glad he led with that. Uh, and he was amused by how we use Genesis's Invisible Touch. Well, yeah. That was all you, man. Yeah, sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't, and uh, it looks like that one we got. Uh Michael Bailey, uh, I understand that starting at Giant Sized X-Men number one is a great place to start, especially if you're most familiar with that series of X-Men, but I think we do a really good job covering the first 66 issues, and uh, as you get time, I highly recommend you start off with the first episode, but to each their own. And then I had a, a, just a question uh, for our listeners. Normally we ask our, quest, our, our listeners to ask us questions, but I'm going to ask one of our listeners of questions and uh, this question goes out to pat gunter two things first of all when we first introduced him as one of our listeners i pronounced his name as gunter and he emailed in to remind us that it is not gunter he's not german it's gunter rhymes with hunter so apologize for that a little late on the delay on that uh, or apology but i'm curious um while i enjoy them i'm curious why you post random x related panels to the page just a little curiosity. I got to be honest, when you published the two-page Excalibur spread, I was like, ah, it's a really good issue. Kind of made me want to read it. So I don't know if you're like wetting people's whistles for various issues or if you're just coming across weird panels that you like to share. So let us know what's going on. I did like the Days of Future Past one. Yeah, yeah. Then there's some good stuff. And, and... There was uh, 
all the all the movie characters added into the old Days of Future Past movie poster. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So if you want to join in the fun, go to www.facebook.com forward slash Danger Room Podcast, or you can go to www.xmenpodcast.com. That's our website where you can see all of the episodes and you can post a comment on your favorite episodes. You can email us at dangerroom at redcapproductions.com, or you can visit our Twitter feed at Danger Room Go, and you could email send us a voicemail leave us a voice message asking us a question or making a comment that's 501 get x-men on to the classic x-men oh we said we were going to mention this episode what the um uh, people's ideas for what this new next section is going to be called and and allow you guys to vote on them um peter watson suggests the uncannon extras nicholas hookstra suggests the retconny X-Men or the retconny X-Men. And I think that's it. And if, if we missed one of your uh, suggestions, fans, we apologize and let us know. And we'll, we'll definitely put it in the next issue and make sure that the voting does not close. This is a terrible Art Adams cover. Colossus looks foolish. It's kind of Rob Liefeld-esque. Uh, it looks Rick Leonardi-ish to me. <laughs> so... Well, just just Colossus looks Rob Liefeld esque to me with his gigantic legs, well, and, and arms, it, and his missing feet. I think that's what's doing it for you. But look at his arms, his stupid looking arms. It looks like he's the Blob Colossus. Yeah, and he's got these giant uh, thighs. Oh, it's ridiculous. Nightcrawler looks good. Storm looks good. Cyclops looks okay, but Colossus looks like hell. Uh, yeah, this is issue number seven from March nineteen eighty seven. Uh, and Chris, or, uh, Dave Cockrum is not drawing all the panels. Jim Sherman is helping fill in on a couple of pages. So let's just dive right into whatever it is they thought Page we Page number three, and uh, the first section that they added is the X-Men sneaking onto Cape Canaveral Space Kennedy Space Center, and um, they wear trench coats to get past the guards which isn't suspicious at all. <laughs> and then they put on uniforms over the top of their outfits. Well, Cyclops is doing it up the way you would expect. He's just wearing a trench coat over his costume, as you do in the Marvel Universe. But a couple of other things happen, too. Uh, they're like, first we get this blasted emergency hurry-up launch Christmas week. So they're saying, like, oh, like this was kind of unplanned. We're doing a mission really quick. But then they talk about how they're going to have to scrub this mission because of the fog and apparently right. the fog is the cover that the x-men are using to get in with their trench coats and costumes it's very needless and it looks like in the bottom left hand panel which is one two the fourth panel it looks like wolverine is dressing up he is in... oh wait he can't be exactly that is wolverine yeah that's a mistake Wow, so uh, somehow Wolverine went back down to Cape Canaveral to go back up into space and get captured again without us knowing. And then Colossus in the third panel is colored like he's steel, and then in the second panel, or in the fourth panel, he's he's colored skin, uh, he skin, looked, skin tone. In the third panel, he looks like Captain Planet, yeah. if you remember Captain <laughs> and then Planet. In, and then in the fourth panel, he looks like he's naked. Uh, in the f Oh, yes. Wait, or I guess he's wearing boots, but it looks yeah. like he's not wearing his vest. 
Oh, she's like, she's uh, like voodoo dancing the fog away. I I thought like she was magically making the costume go on her head, but no, that's naked Colossus behind her getting dressed, which doesn't make <laughs> any sense because later we'll learn that Colossus bursts out of his suit and into his costume. This is just a mess. Um. Anyways, so they uh, Cyclops says that uh, Storm can roll the fog back in, which ties into the next panel, which is the news briefing, which has a little bit of smoke around the engine, which I think is supposed to be retconned into fog. But it doesn't make any sense because the the engine would be venting uh, steam and other things from the fuel. Yeah, I think I think that was coincidental, but I don't think so because they they do a very good job here to be like, okay, roll the fog back in, and you got this fog covering up the space shuttle, and then you switch to the next panel where there's this. You think that's a coincidence? I think that, I think that the original intent when they wrote it back in 1975 was that it was supposed to be vented uh, steam from the engine, but as they rewrote it, they're like, huh, how about we just make that part of the fog that they're going to use as cover to get into Cape Canaveral. Yeah, it could be. Could uh, be. You could be onto something. I don't know. It's horrible. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, we're jumping ahead to page nine, in which we get another scene of this mysterious Hellfire Club. Uh, all the members are wearing cloaks and talking to uh, Dr. Stephen Lang, who says that the plan is going as planned, and the aim is to isolate the genetic X factor that differentiates mutant from baseline human and ultimately reproduce it at will, creating whatever powers we require in anyone we choose. Oh. <laughs> and there's a little bit of dialogue. Uh, so Sebastian Shaw is here and the black queen, whose name is Tessa. And I'm there's the white queen, whose name I escapes me at this moment. Um, well, we'll find out in the yeah, we will. second story. He is the chairman of the Hellfire Club. He is not a mutant. And in his thought balloons, he's talking about how he's going to betray Sebastian Shaw shortly. Yes. Right around Shaw, Christmas time. Shaw believes that the plan is to dominate mutant genes, whereas the, apparently the plan is actually to wipe mutants out. Yep. So there's that little backup dialogue. And the chairman is also the White King. Yes. So then we move on to kind of a, uh, a creative use of retcon, but still it's, it's a little confusing. So on page 17, the first panel is original content, and this is where Cyclops says, Come with me, Corbo! And they head off to go and, and get Stephen Lang. But we cut to some retcon stuff where there's some guards guarding um, Wolverine and the Blob. <laughs> Fat Banshee. He is huge. And I feel like it's miscolored because his wings are still attached to his arms all the way down to his legs through the the bindings and the the, the, the strange metal covering his mouth and his body. Yeah, but the, all throughout this, there's two panels where he's featured... Uh, uh, he's skin colored. I know. I, I feel like that's a coloring mistake. I'm sure it is. It's definitely a mistake. But I mean, uh, Banshee has never been so wide. No, no. The, yeah. And he also looks gigantic. <laughs> he looks huge. Well, and uh, Wolverine is bent over. His arms are clasped behind him. It's kind of like he's praying or something. And you've got a couple of humans that are like, oh, these stupid mutants with their fancy powers. And one of them gets out a Swiss Army knife and is about to start cutting them, I guess. I can see why they need to, you know, 
tie down Wolverine in this manner, but why do they need to put like things on Banshee's body and hands and feet? Well, his mouth makes sense, right? Because that covers his power. But yeah, he, right. He, that's why he's like, do they have the juggernaut up there? Because like he's naked, he's big, he's got red hair, and is he's all bound up, like so he can't smash anything. But it's if it's just Banshee, this is seems like a lot of extra gear to you know restrain him. But anyways, uh, before the human is going to torture the mutants with his Swiss Army knife. Uh, Nightcrawler teleports in and punches them all in the face. <laughs> all three of them. Yeah. And then well, it looks like he misses one of them. No, uh, it looks like he misses two of them. He hits one and they, he, the one flies into the other two. That's okay. And then Storm knocks out two of them with a hurricane gust of wind, which is pretty intense for two guys. Uh, Wolverine finally gets a line of dialogue here and he says, leave Plumpo. For me, darling, that's the guy that was going to cut him with a Swiss Army knife. You got... I thought he was talking about Banshee. <laughs> I know. I was like, should that juggernaut over there you're going to cut? <laughs> you got a gun, bub? Go for it. Take your best shot. Then it's my turn. A very horrible picture of Wolverine. <laughs> As he snickets. And then we see a moment later, the Techno's body drops in a dead faint. So did he die or was he just like, oh, his claws? No. He fainted. So this is on page 18 where we then cut back to the comic book. So it was just kind of an interesting way to offset panels. But still. That, that's that's it for our retcon special, this issue. But we have another story in the back of uh, issue six of Classic X-Men, and it is titled Out With The Old. Yep. So while we're on the topic of the Hellfire Club, Sebastian Shaw, the White Queen, etc., they are at a fancy ball uh, at Christmas time, I guess. There is no more exclusive establishment in the world, and yet no more egalitarian. Anyone can belong, provided he or she is wealthy beyond almost all measure. There the are, Hellfire Club. There are few rules and fewer limitations. All things are possible and virtually nothing is forbidden. I always liked the Hellfire Club because all of the chicks ran around in uh, uh, teddies and stuff. Honestly, it makes no sense. All of the guys run around in this like old English uh, pompadours and, and um, or whatever they call those wigs. White, yeah. the, the white wigs and, and old kerchiefs and vests and... It's like ye old English clothes while the women walk around in underwear. Right. It, may, it makes no sense. No, it doesn't. Uh, but the um, uh, Sebastian Shaw is with his uh, girlfriend or date or something, and her name is Lourdes. Uh, and she is introduced to the human white queen. His name is – do we know his name yet? Uh, his Ed name is Ned or Edward Buckman. Edward Buckman. He is a human. And... He's the White King and the White Queen is Paris Seville. Yep. Uh, you may not know who those people are. And the only reason you don't is because you have not read this classic X-Men issue. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so the White Queen and Shaw, they're going back and forth talking about how wonderful it is to be all rich and stuff and junk. We find out that uh, Edward was born into wealth, whereas Sebastian Shaw made his money the old-fashioned way or something like that by lying and stealing, uh, I'm sure. And they talk about Stephen Lang 
and um, it's all it's all kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sebastian Shaw is trying to be convinced by Lourdes and also the Black Queen Tessa that Ned is not a mutant and therefore not to be trusted. But apparently Shaw owes him a lot and wants to trust him. But then he contacts. Emma Frost from across the world, apparently at his guest house, where they have recovered Colonel Rossi, if you will recall, from issue, what was that, a few issues ago? Must have uh, been 90, 95 or 96? Sure, 96 or 97. Who Stephen Lang attempted to have assassinated, but apparently he's still alive. So this, I, Colonel Rossi must come back into the X-Men comics, because like I said, I thought I recalled seeing him somewhere else and that he didn't actually die. So, hooray, I remembered something. But uh, by by doing this, um, the White Queen scans his memories um, and apparently... Well, she's not the White Queen yet. Oh, I'm sorry. Emma Frost scans his memories and apparently uh, she discovers that Project Armageddon which doesn't explain why she's wearing her white queen outfit. <laughs> correct. Correct. No, none of this makes much sense. Like she should just she, just she just likes running around in underwear. <laughs> you would think that she would just be in like a nice dress or something and just be really rich, but no, she's she's already she already knows she's going to be the white queen, so she's just getting ready for it. Um but she finds out the plot that uh whoever controls mutant kind will control the world. Uh Rossi discovered this and it was too late. Uh, and so the the purpose of total eradication of mutants was discovered, and that was concocted by Stephen Lang and Edward Buckman, to which Shaw says Ned. So they keep going back and forth between Ned and Edward. So well, Ned is short. It's like a nickname or a short name for Edward. Is it? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I thought Ned was just Ned. Yeah, it's like it's like. Peggy and Margaret are actually the same name. That's true. That's a good point. Uh, all right. Well, anyways, Shaw is mad, and he starts pounding at the, the I don't know, the railing, the stone railing. Me? Yes, the stone railing. Uh, meanwhile, the Sentinel attacks Emma Frost. Yep, and she calls out for Shaw. Shaw gets the mental image and is like, oh my gosh, there's a robot attacking my beach house. Come on, Lourdes, teleport all three of us, referring to him and Tessa. Lourdes is like, I don't think I can do that. It's really far, and I don't think I've taken that many people that far. And Shaw says, do it! And she does. Do as you're told. And they teleport in there. And we also find that Harry Leland is also at uh, his house across the world with Emma Frost. Harry Leland, of course, of Hellfire fame, much later. Harry Leland kind of runs away, uh, says, you you take him, Shaw, I'll just stand over here. Yes. And Lourdes kind of faints and Tessa hangs on to her. Um However, Shaw is unable to take on the Sentinel. The Sentinel, he, he gets in a good punch to the wall in order to avoid some Sentinel gas. Yep. But then he is wrapped up by some Sentinel ropes, steel well, he, cables, presumably. He's punching the wall because he his power is charged up with kinetic energy. So the more energy is expanded on him, he can absorb and then he can expel all that well, energy at one 
tough. That's just a side effect of punching the wall. He punches well, the wall so that the wind can blow the gas away right. before it can do any us any harm. Uh, but the Sentinel wraps him up in a coil, but that's okay. Lourdes is all like, I love you, Sha. I will teleport you away. And she does. Which she does, but she doesn't do it far enough away, and she gets speared through the chest. Yeah, by a Sentinel. Bam! Leland comes in, and he's like, oh my god, no, 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 no. If only it was, if I could have helped. I'm a murderer. If I'd have acted a little bit sooner, I could have taken him. And Harry's got a cool power. He controls the mass of things. He can affect the mass of them to make them heavier and presumably lighter. Uh, but he makes this Sentinel super heavy with the intent of sinking him to the core of the planet, which is a bit far-fetched. But... And it doesn't work. The The Sentinel gets stuck in the floor and apparently starts fighting back. I, I'm not sure how. Well, that's okay. Shaw's all charged up, so he comes running in and punches the Sentinel in the face. And he continues punching him until the Sentinel pretty much is done for. We get a and, little uh, we, we get a little thing from Harry talking about his heart, which will be a problem for him later on. But uh, he's recovered. He's recovered. He's a fat guy. He's a fat old man, so using his powers hard on him. Sebastian Shaw gives a triumphant fist pump in the air as he has <laughs> defeated the Sentinel and goes to talk to Lourdes. He says, forgive me. And she says, forgive, forgive Sebastian anything always. And Tessa says how much she loves him, how little he realized it. Which I suppose would be sad if we knew who that character was. Yeah, yeah. We had any sort of backstory, but... Yep, Leland and, uh, uh, he, and uh, uh, Emma Frost look on. Emma Frost is protecting her from uh, her own neural receptors so she feels no pain. That's nice. Yeah, And Lourdes is kind of like, oh, Sebastian, why does Buckman hate us? And then, and then he... she dies and is kissed by Sebastian Shaw. Fear of what we are and what we represent. Now, I'll give him cause. So we cut to midnight, apparently, uh, at the, the same night. A secret meeting of the human members of the Hellfire Club being led by Edward Buckman. And essentially what happens is Buckman is kind of talking to everybody, pulls out a gun. He's still just kind of talking, doesn't actually realize what he's doing, and shoots everybody. Yes, I would make a reference to a television show, but I'm not going to because it's possible not everybody has seen it. But anyways, uh, those of you that have seen the show know what I'm talking about, I think. Those of you that haven't, well, go watch the show. If I could be any more vague, I would be. <laughs> uh, but yes, Buckman shoots everybody in the room and says, wait a minute, what am I doing? And then he holds the gun up to his head and we see Emma Frost in the background, to which I thought one of two things. Either one... She created this scenario and uh, made him think that she, he shot everybody so that he would be like, what the hell am I doing? I'm crazy. I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. Or she was telepathically uh, forcing him to shoot himself. My question is, how are Shaw and Emma Frost in the room? Well, that's, I mean, that would give credibility to my first thought, like midnight, right? So he walks down to the secret gathering of the Hellfire Club. Shaw and Emma Frost have already taken care of all of the humans, and Emma Frost creates this kind of mental reality for him. And he's like, look, my people, this is what we got to do. And then for some reason, he starts shooting them. 
But that's not the case. I don't think. Again, how did Shaw and Emma Frost get here? Well, Emma Frost is a psychic, so she should be able to walk by anybody and be like, these are not the droids you're looking for. Well, right. But in the next few panels, Shaw points out that he disconnected the telepathic inhibitors around the chamber. So he's been back for a while doing physical things in the physical realm. And then he grabs Edward by his neck and and breaks his neck and and also breaks the gun that he has. Mm -hmm. So they're in the room. Yes. So how did they get here? Well, they disconnected the telepathic inhibitors around this chamber. I know, but how did they get here physically? Lourdes teleported them halfway across the world. It is now midnight on the same day. How did they get back? Tessa has telepathic powers. I mean, teleportation powers. Well, then why did Lourdes need to teleport both of them in the first place? Tessa doesn't have teleportation powers. (laughs) I don't know. The same reason that Wolverine was getting onto the space shuttle to go up to the spacecraft to rescue himself. That's why. Uh, Yeah, that's a good point that I didn't even think about. Uh, But this is supposedly the retcon origin of how Sebastian Shaw becomes the ruler of the Hellfire Club, because ultimately he wants to be the ruler of the world. Well, who doesn't? Next, Phoenix. Don't know what that means. I don't either. What's a Phoenix? I don't know. So, <laughs> it just, it's it it's a neat idea, and what I would have, I guess, rather seen, because, I mean, the Hellfire Club is a pretty interesting for a villain, is I would have much rather seen like a one-shot issue where they retcon the whole thing in an issue, and then they could kind of like um, uh, refer to events that are happening in the X-Men, right, and do this whole thing like they did last issue and this issue and expand upon the story, give us some background on Lourdes and Edward and like make us really interested in them and then kill them or whatever. But no, that's not what happens. Yeah, it's... I don't know. It, 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 yeah. And, and to people who have, like, if you're reading this for the first time in order, you have no idea what's going on. Who are these people and why should I care? Exactly. Well, Adam, whatever happened to the Toad? Well, let me tell you, Jeremy, we're going to jump to the uh, Avengers, the 1975 July issue number 137. Um Toad does not actually make an appearance in this issue, but, or does he? Uh, Beast does. In fact, this is the first issue where Beast joins the Avengers. The Avengers are looking for new members because Black Panther just quit and um, uh, maybe somebody else quit too. I don't know, but they're down, they're down, they're down to three members, Thor, Iron Man, oh yeah, uh, Scarlet Witch and Vision are on vacation. They just got married. And Hawkeye is the third member. So they they contact uh, Quicksilver, who says, no, I told you. you. you my sister marries that android. I'm never talking to you guys again. <laughs> Freak. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Yeah, I think it's hilarious, though. Like, on page 10, like, if you guys can get yourself a copy of this, uh, Vision is naked, except for, like, some briefs. And he's all red. <laughs> Yeah, Scarlet Witch is in a, a, a bikini, and um, and Vision is in a uh, speedo. Yeah, it's <laughs> so funny, he's be- all, and he's all entirely red. It's funny because like you never see him in anything but his Vision uniform ever, <laughs> except for this panel. 
it is it's pretty amusing yeah uh they contact captain america he says no Wid- black widow says no hercules says no janet Dine says yes and in fact hank pym will also join so they got two more members but they need one more and Hawkeye goes back in time, I guess, to find Black Knight. The rest of them hold trials in the middle of some sort of uh, stadium, a Yankee stadium. Well, I got to point out that Henry Pym as the Yellow Jacket is just such a stupid costume. And <laughs> you again, like the Yellow Jacket. I no, I just don't like Hank Pym. Like all of his giant man, Ant Man, Yellow Jacket. Like, uh, what is it that he does? He just takes pills, right? He's a pill popper. He's a scientist. He's a super scientist. Oh, and his scien- he, has, he has developed the science of communicating with ants. So I, and then the other thing here with his yellow jacket costume is he's got these giant shoulder blades. Like, he can't look left or right and see anything. <laughs> it's not a great design. It's obstructing costume, no. his vision. All right. So they're, they're at Yankee Stadium. Who's this bald girl with the, with the extra oh. large cleavage? That is Moon Dragon. Moon Dragon. Okay. Uh, she is. She is also a member so, of the Avengers. So they really they've got enough members. I don't know why they need more. Seems like there's plenty. But anyways, this mystery man jumps into the stadium and he's smoking a cigar and he's a he's a fat man. He's like a detective or something. Turns out it's Edward G. Robinson. Who's that? That can't be. I believe he is a gangster. Oh well, he looks like a gangster. Edward G. Robinson was a Romanian-born American actor. He is best remembered for his roles as gangsters. Okay. So he was a gangster actor, and he must be dead at this time? or He like... died in 1973. Okay. So they say that can't be, and it actually isn't because the man grabs his face and pulls it off to reveal that he's the Beast. Yeah, the Beast has continued making latex costumes for no apparent reason, and apparently they're awesome. And the Beast, he's he's lost like all this, uh, uh, this this is his um, sciency talk that he used to have because he's like, "Hiya, kids! Hiya, hiya! You wanna see another trick? I got disguises. I can juggle." He says the very same. Well, a little older and a lot wiser, maybe. And a whole lot more laid back, baby. Oh. <laughs> Y'all want to get high with the beast? <laughs> and so he gives us, in one panel, a quick background uh, of his life as an X-Man, taking the uh, drug that made him into a hairy mutant, and here he is now. And then the best part is uh, <laughs> Thor says, Hold, speak not of thy sacred identity. We do not require such disclosures. To which Beach responds, It's cool, Thunder God. It's cool. Yeah, you want to get high with me, Goldilocks? <laughs> I don't know. This this dialogue is pretty bad for Beast, but... Well, that's the other thing I never really liked about the Avengers so much, is like they hang out all the time, live in this mansion, fight missions with each other, but they're not going to share their identities with one another? Yeah, it's it's... Yeah, whatever. I mean, it just seems like when you're in that close of quarters, you generally tend to share a lot of things with one another. And one of those would be like... Yeah, man, I'm a Norse god. Like that, that uh, 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 what's his name that he pretends Donald to be? Donald Blake. Donald Blake. Like he doesn't exist, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he does. I don't really know. Uh, but anyways, in the, in the first panel here with a beast, he looks like a cartoon character. I almost feel like he should be uh, some sort of in some sort of commercial doing like Cheetos or something. Which which pan which page? 
uh the the page where he's a, a whole lot more laid back oh yeah, yeah 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 it's cool thunder god it's cool it's cool man it's cool <laughs> well anyways uh we we get a little bit more story and then what i gotta i gotta wonder like um on this next page on page 19 he's watching tv uh and and i guess it's a movie about a guy who was hung i'm confused yeah, I don't know what movie that is, but apparently B spent a lot of time thinking. <laughs> I let time pass however it wanted. I watched old movies, read some Castaneda, listened to Stevie Wonder, and by and large put my cruel fate out of my mind. So I'm guessing if this was 1975, I would look at that movie and be like, oh, I know what that is. Right, right. Uh, okay. So anyhow, uh, listeners, if you can identify what movie is on page 19 of Avengers number uh, 137, you will win a prize. Yes. A virtual Eternal gratitude. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, before the X or before the Avengers accept him or they're getting ready to accept him, uh, they hear a voice from the background say, uh, I hope you'll like to die with this group monster. Who's crabbing my act, says the beast. Uh, we don't know. He's in the upper tier up there. Whoever it is, he starts launching spiky little balls at these Avengers. And the Avengers uh, start fighting the spiky balls until Thor realized that it's the Stranger? It's true. The Stranger has come down. Oh, but we get a great Captain Marvel Twinkie ad in between that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a Jan Dine gets knocked unconscious and Iron Man gets taken out and then the Stranger appears and uh, and then promptly disappears and, and says... You know, uh, there will be there will be a, another time and another place for this. Mark my words, you have not finished with the stranger. And uh, that's when we get a we get a little to be continued. Yeah, it's it's apparently after Moon Dragon like shot a beam at him or something like that. I'm not sure when, but apparently the stranger was fish, uh, featured in Thor number one seventy eight. Uh, but he did not have a costume when we lost last saw him in X-Men number 11. And now he's got some goofy green boot, green cape, and red vest deal going on. <laughs> Looks really stupid. Uh, but I don't know what any of that has to do with Toad, Adam. Help me out. Well, let's find out in Avengers number 138, the August 1975 issue, titled Stranger in a Strange Man, which has got to be the worst title ever. It's like it's, a, it's a play on Stranger in a Strange Land, but it's just stupid. Stranger in a Strange Man. It sounds sexy. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing in that strange man? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, they, the Avengers leave Yankee Stadium uh, disheveled, and somebody says, no, they've got a pet gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I guess the crowd is all like, boo, and then by the time Thor says something, they're all like, yay, and then... <laughs> They're like, boo, I don't know what's going on here. but So they're going after the stranger, and... Um... Yeah, there's a lot of confusing things happening here. There's some uh, Scarlet Witch, Thor's got some house floating around him. I think they've invited Beast back to the mansion, but the mansion's all ruined. Um, Iron Man's doing something with a tracking machine, and Beast is just hanging out. <laughs> But then we get to page number 11, and finally the stranger shows up and says, You fools! This time you shan't survive the wrath of the stranger! 
It's true. And uh, they find some sort of machine and uh, they're, they're trying to triangulate the location of the host Tony Stark and the beast stayed behind and the stranger splits up into multiple strangers. And uh, I guess all the scientists are trying to figure out a, a way to get around the stranger's strangeality and all the fighters are fighting the giant stranger and his multiple forms. And now they're making beasts look very ape-like, like protruded lips. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, but you're right. Uh, Thor is meanwhile fighting one of the event uh, strangers who has grown to uh, large proportions. So this goes on, and finally, uh, Beast manages to. He figures out what's going on, and then in, in a he he gets the the stranger to chase him. And somehow in one panel where he's being chased, he says, uh, if I can just do this thing in, in a few seconds before he rounds this corner and then the stranger rounds the corner and Beast is fully dressed and wearing his Edward G. Robinson costume. Yes. How the heck did he do that? He's quick. A cursed X-Man this time. What in the world? What's the matter, Whitey? You send some of your boys to put the heat on my mob. You gotta expect a call from the brother Orchid. Yeah. <laughs> There's a flash of gray and pulsing light, and the stranger is no more. In his place, squats a toad. It was you all along. I dropped I my, dropped thought, my form. thought form. You startled me. That's what I intended. Yep. So it was the toad who is actually masquerading as the stranger this whole time. Always, Always. it's the same. He is but the toad, they say. Forget him. He is a dwarfish dolt. He has no power. Same that found in some master. No, I am just a toad no longer. And he goes on. I swore to be my own master. This is back in Avengers number 53. It's the reason that I stole my marvelous machines. There may be many which will destroy you back in the main hall. And he hops off. You will, uh, yeah. And he goes on. Well, now the Avengers are just beating the hell out of him. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And eventually we get a backstory about... Uh, um, Iron Man calls him a toady. <laughs> And Toad says, do you, do you hear? You call me Toady, a word meaning obsequious sycophant. Wow. He, <laughs> How does Toad know that? He's been studying his dictionaries. I was nothing to Magneto, much less to myself, until the real stranger stole... I'm doing like a Wren. <laughs> until the real stranger stole us away from to, to his world. Of all mutants, I was the most despised. But, Stimpy, I had faith in my master who had deserted me at the first opportunity, though he was swiftly returned, and the seeds of rebellion were already sown. It took me two years, but I harvested that crop. That would be an X-Men 18 and X-Men number... or I mean, Avengers number 53, respectively. My solitude and freedom were short-lived, however. First, I was captured by the Sentinels, and next, that Rua reunited me with the Scarlet Witch. I had loved her from afar when we were evil mutants together. Now I made excuses to remain by her side, a slave to her every gesture, and she knew that. That is how I came to be with Pietro, the night Archon took them. That would have been in X-Men number 59 and Avengers number 75. Soon after your <laughs> And he goes on and on. The Avengers save them, and this is where we get the part of the story where we haven't actually heard. 
uh, he constructs a ship somehow on Archon's world after... Well, I guess Archon must have let him go. I used its resources to construct a ship as I had seen Magneto do and flew across distance and dimension. So it's kind of like he was back stuck on the stranger planet. Well, no, he flies back to the stranger planet. He he goes back to the stranger planet on purpose. Oh, okay. Returning to the prison planet of the stranger. So he was in Archon land, built the ship, and flew to stranger land. Yes. That doesn't Which make any sense. Which is freaking amazing. Why <laughs> is Toad coming back to Earth? <laughs> no kidding. He's interstellar he's a, flight. He's got multiple planets, planets to work off of. He's a freaking super genius. Yeah. Most of the time the stranger is gone from there, I had little to fear as I breached the defenses in much the same way as Magneto had done, and so much to gain. I plundered his planet, removing all of the machinery I could and installing it in my ship. The thought form was the easiest of them all after my years with Mastermind. What? So he's just like studying everybody. His thought form? So is that a machine that created him to look like the stranger, or is he like harnessing some of Mastermind's powers? Yeah, it, it, I believe it's it's what caused him to be able to create those giant things that we didn't really talk about that were attacking uh, Hank Pym. You see, someday when I felt I had mastered all of these devices, I planned to go to Wanda and ask for her hand. <laughs> but then the radio monitors announced she'd already married to your your android, my pain, threatened to enslave me for a final time that instant. Yet I learned to fight it back as I learned to fight everything, and I swore an oath to take the pain to her and all of the Avengers. I used illusions to strike the terror I knew I could never inspire in you. Blast it! Look at me when I am talking! <laughs> Iron Man's fallen asleep at this point. Look, <laughs> He's man. looking at the other guys like, man, this guy talks a lot. I got some stocks to sell. Are you done yet? You'll be sorry! I warn you! And we have no idea what the Avengers do with the Toad. But no. they also don't know that Yellow Jacket is not facing any of them. Have to hold on. Have to for Jan. So some storyline about Yellow Jacket is starting, but we don't care. And meanwhile, Scarlet Witch in her bikini and Vision in some shorts and a, and a nice, uh, uh, some sort of shirt, yellow shirt, are hanging out on the beach. Well, Adam, that's uh, that's all good for uh, the canon version of what I, happened to Toad. But I got to imagine that there's got to be some type of retcon you can fill me in on. Oh, there, there actually is, uh, which I, you know, I'm not going to go over it too much in detail, but it is the Marvel Holiday Special from 1991. It actually takes place just before the issue that we just did in the previous episode. It's what the X-Men did before they met up with Jean Grey and Scott Summers at the big Christmas tree, and it features Toad and the Blob. And it's an eight-page story, and I recommend the readers go find it. And uh, there, there's not a lot to tell. What? Very briefly, what does Toad do? Uh, and how does very... it fit into what we've just read? Oh, I guess everything that we just read is prior to that Christmas, right? Right. Okay. So, um, so... Toad honestly doesn't do anything but stand around. There's uh, I get he gets punched at some point. Okay, <laughs> by Nightcrawler. All right, and uh, the whole Brotherhood is there. 
So I guess what I and want, then, and then all right, I, I should mention that um, Santa Claus turns them in all into toys. Oh, wow! So it may not be that they're even the real, the real brotherhood. <laughs> it's like toy brotherhood. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I, I'll be curious. Uh. How we'll we'll. From time to time, we will revisit uh, characters that we've talked about before and uh, may have gone on to do bigger or lesser things, uh, just to kind of keep track of where they're at. Because, you know, uh, as long as we're in the um, spoiler section of the show, at some point, Toad becomes the X-Men's janitor, and I'm kind of curious how all of that happens. <laughs> It'll take us a long time to get there, but, but you, you know. Yeah, we, we're not going to get there in this decade, probably. So we've chewed your ear enough, and we thank you for sticking around for it. Um, Adam, do you have any final thoughts? Stay frosty, my friends. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. You want to get high with the beast? <laughs> uh, until next time, everybody, the danger room is closed. <laughs>